Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Hello, podcasters. Welcome to Living History as we hear those stirring words from Winston Churchill spoken in 1940. It's definitely the greatest speech of the Second World War and probably one of the greatest speeches ever given. And it was those words that galvanised the British people and prepared them for the upcoming Battle of Britain. France had fallen, the Nazis occupied all of Western Europe, and Britain was next in their sights. And the Battle of Britain, of course, that unfolded was the great aerial contest to see who would dominate the skies over Great Britain. And as we know, it didn't work out for the Germans. The Luftwaffe was defeated in the Battle of Britain. They never gained aerial superiority over the Royal Air Force, and Hitler therefore indefinitely postponed his plans to invade the United Kingdom. But today, we're going to ask, what if? What if things had worked out differently? What if the Germans had won the Battle of Britain? Would they have invaded Great Britain? Could they have invaded Great Britain? Did they have the means and the facilities and the plans to launch an invasion of the United Kingdom? And how would the British have responded? What would Britain have looked like under Nazi rule? They're absolutely fascinating questions, and I can't wait to delve into them. My guest today is Professor Gary Sheffield, who is a Professor of War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton in the UK, and he's an absolute expert on this subject. He knows everything about the Battle of Britain, he knows everything about Operation Sea Lion, and I can't wait to hear his insights into this most amazing chapter of history. I hope you enjoy it. A date which will live in infamy. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor General. There's a second plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. I think we have a terrorist attack. This was their final terror. Gary, it's great to have you on the program, and we're talking about Operation Sea Lion, which really must be one of history's greatest what-ifs, isn't it? I think so. Uh, 
it, it seemed to be in the summer of 1940, there was a real opportunity for Nazi Germany to invade Britain, to knock Britain out of the war. And if that had happened, well, who can tell? But certainly the, the course of the Second World War and indeed world history would have been very different. But I have my doubts about whether it could actually could have really, have really have happened. But it's a great might have been. Well, I'm looking forward to discussing that with you uh, in more detail. Before we get to that, why don't you give us an overview of this military situation in 1940 when the Germans were considering an invasion of the UK? Well, that's right. Uh, I think we, we need to go back to the 10th of May 1940 when the Germans launched their major attack into the Low Countries, the Netherlands and Belgium and, and then into France. We need to bear in mind that in 1940, beginning of 1940, everybody thought that France was a strong major military power, including the Germans themselves. And the scale of the defeat of the French and their allies, principally the British, took everyone by surprise. And so in six weeks, the Germans had destroyed French defences. The French army actually fought, I think, a lot better, particularly in the second phase of the campaign, than they're often given credit for. But by mid-June 1940, it's all over, and France has been defeated effectively in six weeks. And that produces a completely unprecedented and, and uh, an unforeseen situation, that Germany is victorious in the West, and Britain, who's in, which, whose entire strategy had been based on fighting in alliance with France, suddenly found themselves on their own. Dunkirk is um, is a miracle of deliverance that the British really didn't think they were going to get many troops away at all. In fact, they lifted something like 300,000 off the off the mole at Dunkirk and indeed off, off, off the beaches, and they got them back to, to, to Britain. Virtually all of their equipment had been left behind, but the, the men very largely were at home, although you know, thousands, tens of thousands were marched off to prison of war camps. But this had this situation in which the British army was in absolute bits. Germany was triumphant. And everybody then started to think, well, what happens next? And there's two real things that could happen. There could be a form of peace patched up between Britain and Germany, a German invasion. But of course, in the end, neither of those things happened. But on, they certainly, but, but those are the two options that seemed on the cards in the early summer of 1940. It's, when you talk about the invasion of France and the huge victory the Germans had, I, I can't help but think about the First World War. And it was really a repeat of that situation. Germany coming into France, Britain assuming that they would go over and join France in this uh, continental campaign against the Germans. The speed must have taken everyone by surprise, including the Germans themselves. That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, the Germans had not prepared for this level of, if you like, you can call it catastrophic success. Uh, and um, Hitler and the generals and everybody was, was taken uh, for, was ta- taken, taken by surprise. Looking back on it, we can see that there was a real difference between the quality of the armies in 1940 compared to the First World War. In the First World War, the armies on the Western Front, give or take, were much of a muchness in terms of technology, in terms of morale, command, and all the rest of it. So it was a brutal, attritional slogging match. But in 1940, there was a real imbalance because uh, the French forces in particular simply were not up to the quality 
of the Germans, not in terms of technology. In some ways, they, they had better kit than the Germans did. But in terms of command in particular, uh, the, 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 the Germans were a long way ahead. So the Germans produced this what became known as a blitzkrieg victory, a lightning war war victory. And uh, as we said, it took everybody surprise and uh, by surprise. And the key thing about that, as far as sea lion was concerned, is that the Germans, just as much as, as the Brits, were facing a completely unforeseen situation. They really had to make up policy on the hoof. And that brings us to the German plan. So they, they're beyond their wildest dreams. They've now captured effectively all of Western Europe, only the Brits to face. So they came up with this plan for Operation Sea Lion. Tell us about the German plans for an invasion of Britain. Well, it's really not true to say there was one plan. There was a series of plans. One of the big faults from the German point of view was that there wasn't what today we would call a joint approach. The army, the navy, the Kriegsmarine and the Luftwaffe, the Air Force, were not working together. In fact, they came up with three very different plans and the three German services had very different ideas and indeed varying levels of enthusiasm. Basically, the Navy looked at uh, what they were being asked to do with something approaching horror. The, 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 the German Navy at the beginning of the war uh, was already uh, much weaker than, than the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy was um, one of the greatest navies of the world, the uh, along with the, the Imperial Japanese Navy and, and, and the U.S. Navy, but it was by far and away the biggest and most powerful navy in Europe. Now, the German Navy actually had come up in 1939 with Plan Z, which was um, uh, quite an ambitious plan, which would have produced uh, a really quite a formidable fleet. Problem was, from the German point of view, this plan was not due to become uh, operational in full till 1946, so war actually came at least six years too early from the German Navy point of view. And then in the Norwegian campaign fought in um, April, May 1940, which, of course, the Germans actually won. They ended up occupying Norway, chasing out the British who came in to support the Norwegians. But actually, from the German Navy point of view, it was a, an absolutely pyrrhic victory because they lost extremely heavily in terms of um, of ships. Um we can actually look at one particular action on the uh, the 13th of April 1940, the Second Battle of Narvik, uh, a naval action in the, the port up in the uh, Arctic north of Norway, in which one British battleship, HMS Warspite, plus its attendant destroyers, um, destroyed or caused to be destroyed uh, eight uh, German destroyers, four of which were scuttled by their own crews when they realised that they were going, going to be captured. Now, this basically halved an already inadequate number of destroyers. So smallish, medium-sized ships, really important uh, for operating in the channel, meaning that the, the, the German Navy really just could not see any way they could support an invasion of the English Channel unless it was uh, a very limited uh, invasion on quite a narrow front. Now, the German army, understandably, from their point of view, had a completely different plan. What they wanted to do was to land on a very broad front. They they wanted to land from uh, the Straits of Dover in the east to Lyme Bay in the uh, in the English West Country, 150, 180 miles, something like that. Because for for the for the for the very good reason, as as General Halder put it, that if they landed on a very narrow frontage, that it would be like feeding uh, German troops into a sausage machine. In other words, the British Army could simply wait for them 
and actually destroy them as they came ashore. So the Germans wanted to land on a broad front for very good reasons. The German German, uh, uh, Navy wanted to land on a narrow front for equally good reasons. And so the two plans were mutually uh, at odds. And the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, uh, really they thought they could bring about victory without invasion at all by destroying the Royal Air Force by reducing Britain to the point at which the bombers could range uh, range across southeast England to uh, carry out terror bombing of London. And so I think Goering, the, the, the German Air Force chief, was never very keen on, on, on the, the idea of an invasion anyway. So you don't have one German plan, you have three German plans, which are pretty incompatible. The British must have been watching all this with a sense of trepidation. Uh, There must have been a fairly strong British plan in place to counter any German offensive across the Channel. Tell us about that. What were the British going to do? Well, there was, but I think we need to be aware that some of the people at the top, all along, because of the enormous problems that the Germans would have had taking on and defeating the much greater uh, size of the Royal Navy, were dubious about whether the German invasion was ever really a goer. So, so Churchill, speaking to the War Cabinet on the 10th of July 1940, said that he thought any German invasion would be a, I won't attempt to do the accent, but a most hazardous and suicidal operation. And on the following day, he said to his private secretary that he thought that the Great Invasion Scare was serving a most useful purpose. In other words, keeping people up to the mark. Uh, if people thought there was going to be inv- an invasion, it was in the interest of the British government to let them let them let them think so. But actually, Churchill and among others were really very sceptical about whether it's ever going ever going to work. But as far as planning is concerned, there's actually in, in effect there's, there's there's two phases of plans. The first phase phase is in July when the British army is at its weakest, when the uh, the senior British commander uh, uh, Field Marshal. Sir Edmund Ironside, tiny Ironside, called Tiny because, of course, he was six foot four or about that tall. He came up with a rather uninspiring plan for what became known as as, as crust defence. In other words, the uh, the shoreline where the, the invasion was going to happen was held very weakly. And the idea would be that the Germans, once they are shore, would be hit by uh, mobile counterattack formations based in the London area, and there'd be a series of stop lines. If anybody's ever wandered around the countryside in uh, southern England to this very day, you can see uh, concrete pillboxes quite often plonked down in the most inappropriate places. But this is part of these defences from 1940. Uh, The idea being that you would slowly fight the Germans as they ground their way forward. Really a sort of uh, an updated version of 1914. Uh, 16 First World War style attrition. Now, uh, Ironside actually is is, uh, is is removed. He's actually, he actually retires, and the uh, the general who takes his place, at least in terms of defending Britain, uh, is uh, General uh, Sir Alan Brooke, who of course later on becomes uh, Churchill's senior military advisor, and of course after the war become, becomes Lord Alan Brooke. Now, Brooke uh, doesn't like this idea at all, which is just as well because Churchill doesn't. Because he thinks that the one time the British army has of really doing damage to the invading Germans is when they're on the beach, when they're at their most vulnerable. 
And so he scraps the, the crust plan and basically has the idea to fight them on the beaches, to use a very Churchillian term, uh, to engage any German breakthroughs by counterattacks, uh, counterattack formations. Churchill demanded the formation of leopard brigades. In other words, mobile brigades, which would be sort of sent among the Germans to sort of rip them apart as a leopard rips, rips apart its, its prey. And just to show the measure of how serious the British took this, and perhaps a measure of desperation, the British had a plan to saturate the landing beaches with mustard gas. Now, in the in the Second World War, gas was not used on the battlefield uh, by by the British or or, or, or by the Germans. Uh, there was a real taboo about using gas as a result of the First World War. But in this time of absolute desperation, the British were, were willing to throw that to one side. And so had the Germans landed on, on, on the beaches, they would have been greeted by, by chemical warfare, which actually was not used anywhere else on the battlefield in the First World War. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It sounds um it sounds like a German uh, quite an audacious German plan met by uh, by desperate British plans. Um the the big question of course though is it, well it didn't proceed obviously this uh, this is history that didn't actually occur. What were the reasons that stopped the Germans from launching this invasion of England? I think there are two there, there, there are two reasons fundamentally. The first one is as I've said already that significant parts of the German forces were not very enthusiastic. The navy certainly wasn't. Uh, neither was the Air Force, although for, 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 for rather different reasons. And so had there been a an enthusiasm by all three services and a really concerted push to make it happen, perhaps it would have done. Um, but it simply wasn't that. It didn't, didn't come down to that because the, the German Navy really couldn't see much further than the fact that they had only a sort of pitiful, pitifully small force to put up against uh, a much bigger one. So in the narrow waters of the English Channel, it's not the big ships, not the battleships and battle cruisers that count. Actually, it's destroyers and to some extent, uh, light cruisers. And if I tell you that the Royal Navy had about 70 to 80 destroyers in home waters in September 1940, the Germans had a total of eight. That actually tells you about how suicidal it appeared to be. And of course, in terms of actually uh, transshipping men from the uh, the continental channel ports in, in France and Belgium and, and, and the Netherlands across to England, well, they really had very little in the way of purpose-built landing craft, uh, very unlike what was to happen four years later when the 
Anglo-Americans were going back in opposite direction to, to, to Normandy. Uh, many of the troops who would have been taken across the channel were taken in channel would have been taken in um, in, in river barges, which were frankly unseaworthy. Um, that they were very slow. They had to be towed by other ships. And it was uh, a complete nightmare from the point of view of the Navy, German Navy, or for that matter, if you were a German soldier sitting on one of these things. So from that point of view, the, 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 the German Navy were never very enthusiastic and they, they simply could not promise to get the troops across the Channel. The other reason, of course, is the Battle of Britain. Now, we today see the Battle of Britain very much in terms of being an air battle. In fact, even more specific than that, it's the battle between fighter command and the uh, and, and the German German fighters. That's of course critical, but there is more to it than that. The other element I would certainly mention is the role of bomber command, indeed coastal command, in attacking the German invasion barges. So as well as the the, the fighters defending over north over, over southeast England, uh, British bombers were were attacking the um, the invasion ports night after night and doing some quite significant damage. To, 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 to the German um, to, to the German barges. But above all, I think the key factor in persuading Hitler not to launch invasion of uh, Operation Sea Lion is the fact that the Luftwaffe could not win air superiority over Southeast England. In um, on the 16th of July 1940, Hitler issued Führer Directive Number 16, in which he set, set out four. Um, things which had to be achieved before the invasion could be launched. And the first one of these was the the Royal Air Force had to be defeated, that they they needed to have air superiority over the southeast of England, which could allow the the, the invasion force to cross without being attacked by the air. And that simply never happened. It was touch and go on various occasions. Um, The Germans on occasions did seem to be destroying the, uh, the the fighters of the Royal Air Force and killing the pilots at a greater rate than, than they could be uh, replaced. But ultimately, they never quite managed to do it. And so the victory of fighter command is incredibly, is incredibly significant. It meant that the Germans were turned off of any idea of launching this invasion. And of course, it was the first real strategic defeat the Germans had suffered in the Second World War. And as such, sent out a really important uh, signal to the rest of the world, not least the neutrals, primarily, of course, at this stage, the United States, that the British were not only still in the war, they were actually fighting back and winning. But ultimately, with the the Luftwaffe failing to get control of the skies over over, over southeast England, Hitler recognised that it was a non-starter. And on the 17th of September... Uh, 1940. So two days after what today is now commemorated as Battle of Britain Day, Hitler postpones Operation Sea Lion. One final point about this: all along, Hitler, I think, didn't. If he'd got away, if he could have got away without attacking Britain and brought Britain to terms, he would have preferred that. He quite admired the British Empire, but also he quite feared the British as being doughty opponents. But his real enemy, he saw as being. Stalin's Russia and the Eastern Front. And already by this stage, he was starting to think about striking east rather than west. And so he turned to something which, from his point of view, was frankly easier to do. Something that could be done on land, didn't have to have these difficult uh, maritime 
component uh, of the operation. So in the end, a combination of things of which I, I, I think that the uh, the defence of, of, of fighter command of southeast England persuaded him against it. So, so on, on 17th of September, Hitler takes the decision to postpone Operation Sea Lion. It's never entirely cancelled. It remains on the back burner uh, for, for, for some time. But really, to all intents and purposes, that's it. He has suffered a strategic defeat against Britain and he's never able to, to renew the threat. You mentioned D-Day, and I think that's a really interesting comparison. Um, I mean, D-Day took almost two years to plan and the, the huge amount of resources that were required to cross the channel and land a force in France. And Sea Lion was effectively D-Day in reverse. Let's, I mean, let's, let's speculate a little bit. Can you, in all the research you've done about this, Gary, can you see a way the Germans could actually have pulled this off? To be honest, no. And I, I think that you, you've actually put your finger on it. Just look at D-Day. It took uh, two plus years of planning, um, a very well-organized joint tri-service approach in which the, uh, the, the Army, Navy and Air Force, in fact, you know, multiple Army, Navy and Air Force, because it was an Anglo, American, Canadian, Canadian thing, worked together in close harmony. Massive resources were poured into it. It's a completely different proposition than than Sea Lion, which is done on 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 a, on a wig and a prayer. Um, of course, it never actually happened, so we can't say definitively what the outcome would like to be. But actually, interestingly, we got the closest uh, next thing, which is that in 1974, at the um, the old um, British Army Staff College at Camberley, they ran uh, a Kriegspiel, a war game, a map exercise on the invasion of of Britain in uh, in, in 1940. And they got in some some very big hitters. So, for example, Adolf Galland, who in 1940 had been a, a Messerschmitt pilot, was drafted in to role play um, Goering. Anyway, and so you had these senior officers from from both Germany and Britain. They gamed the um, the invasion of, of of Britain out. And what strikes me is that the, 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 what actually happened in the game is pretty much along the lines I suspect would have happened for, for real. The Germans do succeed in getting their troops ashore. However, they're, pe- they're pending on, on, the, on, on the beachhead by the British. Say the British, actually, there's an Australian division, which is in Britain at the time. And actually, that's involved very heavily in the fighting in this, uh, in, in this, this reconstruction, 1940. There's also uh, Kiwi forces who get involved. So the Commonwealth forces... Pin the Germans into to to the bridge into the beachhead. The Germans simply don't have enough lift to get every uh, all all of their troops across in one go. So even the divisions that land don't actually have their many tanks with them or much in the way of heavy artillery. The Germans uh, do a major airborne drop, uh, which actually is partially successful, but actually takes some very heavy casualties. And in the end, just as the, as planned by the Royal Navy, uh, a strong force of light cruisers and destroyers arrives on the scene, intercepts the second wave, bringing across the reinforcements, basically, basically destroys it. There's, there's, there's very little left of it. And so the Germans are forced to evacuate what troops they've got left uh, from England. And, the, the, and about 10 days after Sea Lion is launched, um, that's uh, that's really the end of it, and and the last German troops are surrendering. So I say it's played played out, and that strikes me as being as realistic an outcome to a German invasion uh, as 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 any ever any we're like any we're like to get. 
If I could just mention just 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 one last thing for me, the the, the killer piece of evidence about what the British expected to happen in 1940 comes down to the fact that in August 1914, so at the height of the invasion scare, Britain decides to send its its one fully equipped armoured brigade, not to the south coast of England, but to Egypt, because they recognise quite rightly that whereas the invasion of England was unlikely to happen, and if it was, it would be stopped by 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 the Royal Navy, there was a real threat to Britain's position in Egypt. And so that's where the reinforcements needed to be sent. And I think that was the right call, frankly, that the invasion of England was never likely to happen, or if it did happen, it would end in disaster for the Germans. It's fascinating stuff. You mentioned the Australians there and this this whole concept that had England been invaded, you know, the Australian forces could have found themselves fighting in the UK instead of North Africa. It's just fascinating to think about. But the one thing I, I really got out of that, Gary, that I thought was really important and probably something we overlook not just when we talk about Operation Sea Lion or the Second World War, but warfare in general, logistics is so important in this. It's not just a case of Germany getting combat troops and tanks and artillery across the channel. They have to keep them fed. They have to get them ammunition. And if you're dealing with an amphibious operation like this, look at the issues they had around D-Day. Even as well prepared as they were for D-Day, one of the ongoing dramas was the logistics of keeping that force supplied. Um, that's obvious. That must be a huge factor in, uh, in... It would have been a huge factor in the defeat of Germany had they tried this invasion. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, as, as you rightly say, in, in, in Normandy in 1944, it's logistically incredibly well supported but not everything went smoothly uh, there was a there was a great storm of course about a fortnight into into the, the campaign which brought the um the ships coming across from england with supplies almost to a halt and people started to run out of ammunition and petrol and what have you in normandy so you know even the best prepared operation is a, is at the um um, is at risk from, from those sorts of things. And Operation Sea Lion was a very poorly planned operation. I, I keep coming back to it. The German Navy had it right from the beginning. It was not going to work. It absolutely wasn't. Well, let's, while we're looking into our crystal balls and wondering what might have been, uh, let's, let's ask some other questions about that. Were there other options for Germany in 1940, apart from this idea of a fairly slapdash invasion plan across the Channel? Did Germany have other options to defeat the UK in 1940? Um, I can think of three, actually. The, the, the first one is to do what they actually tried to do in reality, uh, although majorly a little bit later. That is to starve the British into submission by at- attacking the Atlantic lifeline, by unleashing submarines in the Atlantic to try and sink supply ships so Britain starved into submission. Problem is, from the German point of view in 1940, they simply did not have the capability to, to, to do that. Uh, the Battle of the Atlantic was... Touch and go for the British, but in 1940 the Germans were a long way from inflicting the, the sort of defeat that they the British feared they might be coming into in 1943. Um, the second one, uh, actually rather more realistic from the German point of view, is to try and terrorise the British into uh, making peace. Now, had the had fighter command lost the battle of britain the plan was to uh, pull the remaining fighters uh, squadrons out of the southeast of england into the midlands uh, to hold them back so when the 
invasion actually happened, if it did, there would then be a, a, a maximum effort from from the air force to hit them on hit them on the beaches. But that, of course, would have left the southeast of England and critically um, London open to heavy bombing by day and by night um, without air cover, which was there for for, for real in, in, in 1940. Now. We know that Londoners, indeed people in other British cities, survived um, intent, pretty intensive night bombing from September through to May 1941 without their morale collapsing. We know that Germans from 1942 to 1945 resisted day and night bombing from the RAF and the US uh, AAF uh, without capitulating. But who can tell what the situation would have been in 1940? Had the bombing been heavy, heavy, heavy enough, it's... I suppose conceivable that then that the British might have sued for some sort of peace, but so much of this I think depends on the critical factor, which is who is the man in number ten? Does Winston Churchill become prime minister on tenth of May nineteen forty, as he does in reality, or is it his rival, um, the Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax? Now today, it seems so obvious that Churchill is the man who's going to be chosen to lead Britain through the Battle of Britain and the Blitz and all the rest of it to victory in 1945. But he was by no means the obvious choice in May 1940. He was a maverick. Uh, many people, not in, at least in his own party, the Conservative Party, did not trust him fully. The King and the Queen would have preferred to have had uh, Lord Halifax as being prime minister. And my reading is that once Churchill's, uh, sorry, Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain's authority had crumbled as a result of the Norway debate uh, in early May 1940, when, when basically uh, his, his, his majority in the House of Commons plummeted and he clearly had lost the um, lost, lost, lost the confidence of, of, of many people in his, his own party. My sense is that the prime ministership was there for Halifax's taking had he wanted it. But again, my sense of it is that um, Halifax, and this is his greatest contribution to British politics and quite a distinguished career of public service, he had enough self-knowledge to realise he was not the man to lead Britain at this critical time. So he, effect, in effect, he stood back and allowed Churchill to become prime minister. But had Halifax had a different approach, had he decided that he simply could not trust Churchill or thought it was his duty to become prime minister, I think then there's a possibility that Britain could have come to come to some sort of compromise peace, which would have in, a meant, in, in effect meant that Britain remained intact, the empire remained intact, but it handed over Western Europe to domination by Nazi Germany. So actually, I think the Germans' best hope of victory over Britain in 1940 is that Churchill does not become prime minister, Halifax does, and the Germans in, then intimidate the British, probably by mass bombing of London, into coming to some sort of compromise peace. It's a terrible prospect, isn't it, this idea of Britain and Germany negotiating a peace to end the Second World War. It's it's incomprehensible. I think in all this, Gary, though, the, the big question that no one can really answer, but it's 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 fun to speculate on, Let's imagine for a minute that Sea Lion had been successful. The Germans had launched it and had successfully invaded the United Kingdom. What would Britain, having been conquered by the Nazis, what would Britain have been like in those days of the war? Okay. Um, 
Well, I'll give you a quick answer, then I'll give you the answer I really want to give. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that Sea Lion was, was a non-starter. But ha- had somehow it happened, I don't think that what would have happened in Britain would have been much different to what happened in any other occupied country. We, the Brits, tend to fool ourselves that somehow we would have been different. We wouldn't have been collaborating, we'd have been resisting. Actually, there would have been a mixture of collaboration, of resistance, but I suspect, as in occupied France, occupied Belgium and many other places, most people would have done neither. They would have kept their heads down and tried to get on with life. Uh, We know enough about German plans uh, to know that life would have been pretty, pretty grim. There was uh, the notorious um, blacklist of people who were going to be interrogated, arrested, interrogated at the very least, quite possibly cast off to concentration camp or shot or or, uh, or, or shot. Um, the male population, adult male population of Britain was going to be deported to the continent. It, it would have been utterly ghastly. But as I said, I really don't think it was likely, likely to, 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 to happen. What I think is horribly plausible, however, is that you do have this compromise peace in 1940. And undoubtedly, Britain would have got away with, with not having the worst of German occupation. But they would have progressively been sucked into the Nazi orbit. That Britain would have become increasingly authoritarian increasingly it would have had to have given way to German demands for various things. And so I think Britain, it's entirely plausible, would have become a sort of semi-fascist state almost by, by stealth. My, um, I think the, 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 the best depiction of this is, is in a historical thriller, uh, Dominion, which was uh, published by, uh, by C.J. By Sampson, published... 2012 i think not not that long ago and he depicts exactly the situation in which britain does come to peace with germany in 1940 interestingly Sampson actually says in in the book that originally he was going to set it in a in a in a, in a, a britain conquered by germany but realized that it was very unlikely to happen because of the things i've been talking about but he comes up with something i think much more frightening in a sense this idea that you actually have this authoritarian british state which becomes semi-fascist so oswald mosley for example and the black shirts become respectable mosley is in the war cabinet uh, as uh, or in the cabinet as foreign as as, as sorry as home secretary um, the book is set in 1952 so 12 years after the supposed british defeat um, and lord beaverbrook who was a sort of rather uh, you know sort of a slimy um, uh, press baron and a, and, and a very sort of a, a right right wing views. He has emerged as the um, as British as as, as as British Prime Minister, and um, what we actually see is, is this depiction of a state which doesn't become fascist overnight, but becomes fascist or at least semi-fascist by degrees. And without giving away too much of the plot of the book, one of the critical moments is that Britain needs to make a deal with Nazi Germany in order to increase the size of the British armed forces, because the British are actually busily trying to uh, exploit their empire for all that that it's worth. And there's something like a a major civil war go or major insurrection going on in in India. And the price they pay is that British Jews are to be handed over to the Germans. Now, all of that is horribly plausible. Um, I'm reminded of the, uh, the analogy... I wouldn't like to swear to, 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 to the scientific uh, reality of it, 
that supposedly if you put a, a frog into boiling water, it will hop out straight away. If you put a frog into cold water and gently warm it, by the time it gets to critical point, by the time it gets to boiling point, it's too late and the frog is doomed. In the same way, I can quite see people forming up behind a sort of right-wing semi-collaborationist government in 1940 because it seemed to be the only option. It becomes increasingly authoritarian or uh, increasingly fascist by by the time people realize what's happening, it's too late. Uh, in the book, by the way, Churchill and Attlee, Clem Clement Attlee, uh, go into opposition and eventually uh, form a, a, an underground resistance force. So I think that's actually the most realistic uh, outcome of, of, a, of a British defeat in 1940, something along, along those lines. Well, it's so terrifying, Gary, because of, as you say, it's such a near-run thing. I, I, I agree with you, certainly, that the conquest of Britain via an invasion was always unlikely. But as you say, a couple of things could have gone differently in British history, and this could have been the reality, the, the British making peace with the Germans and forming some sort of uneasy uh, alliance to, uh, to, to carry on. Um, just a, a terrifying prospect. But the, the whole thing is just, um, it's been really wonderful, Gary. I've really enjoyed this with you. A little bit of speculation, but also an analysis of, of the reality of, this, of this, this really difficult situation. As we say, it could have gone uh, the other way very, very easily, and we could have seen a whole different history. Well, well, thank you. Of course, the one good thing about alternative history is no one can ever tell you definitively that you're wrong because nobody knows. Exactly. It's, um, I've really enjoyed it, Gary. It's been great having you on. We'll definitely get you on the show again to talk about uh, all things history. Gary Sheffield, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much indeed, Matt. Cheers. Cheers. 